1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 to 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenus to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both with their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, just before I pray, will you turn with me to Acts chapter 18? It won't be on the screen because I only thought about it this morning. Acts chapter 18, where we see the planting of the church in Corinth. So we're going to look at this letter that Paul writes to the Christian church um, in Corinth, which is in Greece. And in Acts 18, um, Luke, who is writing this history of the early church, tells us how the church was started, how it was planted uh, by Paul. So Acts chapter 18, and let me read from verse 1 to 11. <clears throat> After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with a word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to him, said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, for I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we do pray that we may also hear the word of God, just as those early Christians in Corinth heard the word of God. And we pray that your spirit may apply it to our lives, to our hearts, to our church. And we pray, Lord, that we may be a biblical church, that we may follow the teachings of Christ and his messengers. So speak to us now, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. 
If you've uh, driven around Joburg the last couple of weeks, no doubt you've seen a billboard. It says the Sex Expo, Times Square. From time to time, there are billboards uh, for teasers, uh, which is some kind of nightclub. There are billboards uh, advertising all kinds of adult entertainment. It's not unusual in Joburg. That would have been commonplace in the city of Corinth. Corinth, let me give you a bit of background about the city, because that's where Paul planted this church. Corinth had been there for a couple of hundred years. It's at the south of Greece. It's, um, it was uh, destroyed by the Romans in 146. It was conquered, destroyed by the Romans as a city. And then Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth in 44 BC. And so it became a new city, and it became a fast-growing city with uh, trade, with industry, with commerce. It was a port. It was a trading center. Um, and it became a prosperous, cosmopolitan, pagan city. It was fast. It was rough. It was tough. Uh, there was enormous amount of sexual immorality. There was enormous amount of greed. Uh, there was enormous amount of worship of idols. Sounds a little bit like Joburg, doesn't it? Do you know that gold was discovered on the reef in 1886? Um, and by 1890, four years later, do you know that in Joburg there were 261 bars and houses of ill repute? The roots of Joburg is what? Gold, prostitution, gambling, greed. Those are the roots. And not a lot has changed. We're just a big mining town. Very much like Corinth. Corinth had, uh, they didn't have a sex expo. What they had is they had a temple devoted to the goddess Aphrodite. She was the Greek goddess of love. And the, uh, the temple was dedicated to the glorification of sex. So that was their sex expo. And they would have cult prostitutes or sacred prostitutes, over a thousand, who would ply their trade at night. That was normal practice. In fact, that's how you worshipped the goddess of Aphrodite by having sex with one of the sacred priestesses. There was a temple to Apollo. It was a temple dedicated to music, to the arts, to song, to poetry, and to male beauty. So there were many statues of Apollo, nude statues. And Corinth was a center for, for homosexual activity. In fact, in the rest of the Roman Empire, if you wanted to if you wanted to uh, criticize someone with their immorality, you would call them a Corinthian. That's how bad it was. And Paul goes, of all places, he goes to Corinth to plant the gospel. And he does that in 50 AD. So 50 AD, Paul goes to Corinth. We've read that in Acts 18. He goes to Corinth and he preaches the word of God. He first starts in the synagogue. They throw him out and then he goes to the Gentiles. And we are told that there are a number of people who believed his message as he preached the word of God. And so the church was planted. 
But over the years, Paul heard that there were problems in the church. And so Paul developed this sort of uh, love-hate relationship almost with Corinth. It was a church he loved. It was his child, his baby. And yet he not only loved the church, he became exasperated with the church because of all the problems that had um, infiltrated the church. And in many ways, what had happened in Corinth, and we'll pick this up over the next couple of weeks as Royden and I unpack these opening chapters, you realize that one of the, one of the great problems in the church in Corinth is they've taken on the color and shape of their culture. And though they were Christians, and though they were a Christian church, in many respects, they were almost indistinguishable from other Corinthians. And that is the thing which, which uh, burdened Paul. And that is the thing that Paul was addressing in this letter. So he's planted the church, and then five years later he hears these stories. There are messengers from Corinth who tell him what is happening, and so he then addresses some of those issues. Let me give you just a quick taste of some of the issues that you find in, uh, in Corinth. If you have a look at chapter 1, verse 12, there were major divisions in the church. So there, 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 there were groups who weren't speaking to each other. There was politics in the church. Chapter 1, verse 12. Um, let's pick it up, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Why must he say that? Well, they're not agreeing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Now we'll have a look at this next week. Major problem when a church has division, when a church has politics. There's gossiping, there's backbiting, there's groups who don't speak to each other. Some of you have been in churches like that. God has been so kind to us that over 25 years we haven't had that. And God has been kind to us. But sometimes you have that in churches, don't you? You have, you have fighting, you have gossiping, you have politics, you have a split. It's a great pain, it's an anguish if you're part of a church that's split. And that's where Corinth is going. So Paul has to address this problem, and we'll pick that, that up next week. Another huge problem, which is sort of obvious, is that there were huge sexual immoralities within this church. Have a look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So yeah, you have a church, and there's a, there's a, there's a member of the church in good standing in the church, and uh, he is living with his stepmother. I mean, can you believe that? Uh, and he's a member of the church, and the church isn't doing anything. There's no church discipline. It's just fine. And Paul is concerned, concerned about that. What about the godliness of this church? What kind of example is that? Why aren't you doing something? Have a look at chapter 6, verse 9. There's widespread homosexuality, which is obvious from the temple of Apollo that was dedicated to homosexuality. Chapter 6, verse 15. Some of, the, some of the members of the church were still worshiping at the temple of Aphrodite. 
What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean they went to say prayers and sing songs. No, they were sleeping with some of the temple prostitutes and calling themselves Christians. I mean, it's extraordinary. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who has joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? So there were major problems in this church. In chapter, in chapter 6, verse 1, some of the members of the church are just willy-nilly taking lawsuits against each other. So there are people in the church, and uh, they're a church on a Sunday, but Monday uh, you hear about their court case against each other. So it was a church that he loved, and it's a church that exasperated him. And so Paul writes this letter to address those things. Over and above all of that, there was a great questioning among some of the members of the church in Paul himself. Some were questioning his authority. Some were questioning his message. Some were questioning his gospel. So Paul is writing this letter to correct the wrong teaching, the false teachers inside the church. Now I think this is a letter we need to study. Because one of the great temptations we have as Christians, we have as Christian churches, is to take on the color of our culture. One of the great problems we have in Christendom, in Gauteng, in Africa, is that we almost like chameleons. You take on the color and the shape of the culture around you. And Paul is saying, you are not to be like that. You are to be separate. You are to be holy. You are to be different. And so he's writing to them, and it's a strong letter. It's a hard letter. When, he re when this letter was read at the church in Corinth, there were a lot of red faces in the church. Let me tell you. There were a lot of angry people. Because they didn't like what Paul was saying. Well, Let's have a look at chapter 1, verse 1 to 9. Let me explain what's happening here. So we're going to unpack some of those issues. Um, I think we'll need to come back to Corinthians next year. We'll see how far we get um, this term and then pick it up again next year. Um, chapter 1, verse 1 to 9 is really a sort of an introduction. There's greetings, there's thanksgiving, which is what you can see. And then from verse 10, he starts dealing with the problems straight away. He digs in straight away, verse 10. He talks about their divisions. So it's a little bit like a sports coach. So it's Bufana Bufana. We've just lost our second game to Cape Verde. Who has ever heard of Cape Verde? And the coach says... Before, so he's asked a question, why did you lose? The first thing he says is, we've taken some positives from this game. Have you heard that? The Protea cricketers, we lose by 200 runs, but we are told we're taking some positives from this game. Well, the first nine verses are the positives. More seriously, it's like someone who, who's not well, you, you go to the doctor, you've got all kinds of symptoms, so the doctor does an ECD test, he does a... Uh, does a scan, he does countless blood tests, you go back to the doctor, and the doctor starts with the good news. He says, let me give you some good news, you're still alive. <laughs> uh, second good news, you're still breathing. 
But now let me tell you what the problems are. So that's what's happening here. Verse 1 to 9, he is telling them you are Christians. You've got major problems, and we're going to deal with that. Major, major problems. And they may end in tears. But let me first tell you that if you've trusted in Christ, you are Christians. And you're a true church. And I want to encourage you to become a more godly church and a more faithful church. But let me first thank you. Let me first affirm who you are. Let me first tell you the good news. So that's what we have this morning. After that, it's all bad news. So uh, that's something to look forward to. There we go. All right. We can structure this passage into two parts. It's there for us. Uh, Verse 1 to 3, which we'll spend most of our time on, he greets them as a church. And then verse 4 to 9, he thanks God that they are Christians. So it's quite simple. He greets them as a church, and then he thanks God that they are Christians. So let's read again verse 1 to 3 as he greets them as a church. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes was probably the scribe, probably the secretary. So Paul was probably dictating, and uh, so he mentions his name. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in those three verses, we are given at least four key marks of a true church. There are four key marks of a true church. And Paul tells us what it is. And he says, you are a true church because you bear these four marks. Not perfectly, but you're a church of Jesus Christ, a church of God. Now, you may say to me, Martin, I mean, I've come here this morning to get some help, and now you're telling me what the church should be like. But you are well aware that there are many of many churches that are not true churches. And you can be deceived. So we have churches all over Gauteng, all over Joburg, all over Africa, all over Lusaka, by the way, who, uh, who are actually false churches. They're exploiting people. I mean, that's really what the prosperity churches are. It's kind of ironic. They're the opposite of Jesus. Jesus, the one man, fed 5,000. Prosperity churches work the other way around. 5,000 feed one man. Okay, that's the world which we live in. That's, that's, that's what's happening in churches. We have false churches on every street corner here in Gauteng, Midrand. And so we need to know what is a true church so that we don't get deceived. You may relocate. You may go to another country, another city. You need to know what is a good church, what is a bad church. And God tells us. We don't have to make it up. No, God tells us. He gives us here, through the writing of Paul, to Corinth, four of the key marks of a true church, of a biblical church. So the first thing we need to recognize is that the church is apostolic. So have a look there, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So Paul is affirming there that he's not just an ordinary Christian, he's not just an ordinary pastor, he's not just an ordinary leader. No, he is an apostle. 
Now, the word apostle was quite a general word used in Greek culture. It could mean messenger. It was sometimes used of church planters. But 99% of the time in the Gospels, the New Testament, it is used of the twelve. Now, of course, Judas hung himself, and then God called Paul. Acts chapter 9, on the Damascus Road, he appeared to Paul. Paul saw the risen Christ, and Paul was one of the twelve. And the twelve formed the foundation of the early church. The twelve formed the foundation of the Christian faith. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, talking about the church, Paul says, built upon the foundation of the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, and the apostles, meaning the twelve, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. So Paul uses the analogy of a building. He says the church is like a building. The church isn't a building, but it's like a building. And the cornerstone is Christ. And Christ has chosen, called, prophets in the Old Testament and apostles in the New Testament to give us the scriptures which form the foundation of the church. So a church is apostolic not because I'm an apostle. I'm not an apostle. David's not an apostle. Eddie's not an apostle. Royden most certainly is not an apostle. <laughs> We're not apostles. No, we didn't see the risen Christ. Apostles, you look at the end of uh, chapter 1 in the book of Acts. An apostle was someone who was an eyewitness of Christ, especially the resurrected Christ. The apostles have all died. So people who call themselves apostles aren't apostles. They are either misguided or untaught, or they're trying to exploit you. There are no more apostles. When Paul appointed, the apostle Paul appointed Timothy Titus to lead the churches after his death, he didn't appoint them as apostles. No, they were presbyters, they were leaders, they were elders. A true church is an apostolic church, not because it has an apostle standing up in front. No, because we hold to the teaching of the apostles. And who were the apostles? Like the prophets, they were called by Christ to give us the foundation of the church, which are the scriptures, the word of God. Have a look at John chapter 14. Let's quickly have a look here how Jesus appointed the apostles. John chapter 14, last year we looked at John's gospel, we looked at these passages, so they'll be well known to many of you. John chapter 14, verse 25. Notice what Christ promises to the apostles, not to us. This is a promise specifically to the twelve. John 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. He's speaking to the twelve, it's the Last Supper. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus is saying, after my death, resurrection, ascension, I will send, the Father will send the Holy Spirit, and he will teach you and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Chapter 15, verse 26, same idea. Chapter 15, verse 26. Have you got it there? Verse 26. But when the Helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. He's concerned about truth. Notice that. 
who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit will come to you, the apostles. He will remind you of what I have taught you. And you will write it down. So Jesus is telling us how the New Testament will be established. He will send his Holy Spirit, who will use the apostles to write down what Jesus has said and taught. Verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 12. Same idea. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, spirit of truth comes, God's concerned about truth. He will guide you into all truths. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So what can we learn from this? Jesus appointed the apostles. God called the prophets in the Old Testament to be his messengers, to give us the Old Testament. The greatest, the first prophet was, of course, Moses, who gave us the first five books of the Bible. So the Old Testament was written, supervised, edited by the prophets, giving us the Old Testament. Jesus quotes from almost every book in the Old Testament, and he calls it the Word of God. Now Jesus looks ahead. So Jesus looks back. He says, that is the Word of God. Jesus looks forward, and he says, I will send you my Spirit, and my Spirit will lead you into all truth. So that when the apostles write, when Peter writes, when, when James writes, when Paul writes... They are writing, the, when John writes, they are writing the word of God. God the Holy Spirit, supernaturally. That is supernatural. We make no, no apology about that. That is supernaturally. God supernaturally, through his spirit, uh, led them, directed them, so that what they wrote was the word of God. So when we say that we are an apostolic church, what that means is not that we have apostles anymore. They've all died. You, you must have seen the risen Christ. I may be old, but I'm not that old. We're an apostolic church. Why? Because we hold to apostolic teaching. And that is the mark of a Christian church. It teaches the Bible. So when you visit a church and you have someone standing up in front, they may call themselves apostle or prophet or whatever, whatever, doesn't matter. If they're not teaching you God's word, if they're teaching you their ideas, their words, you're in the wrong church. Okay? doesn't matter what the name of the church is. The key is it must be an apostolic church, teaching the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of the prophets as found in the Old Testament, based upon the cornerstone of Christ. So that's our authority. It's not a do-it-yourself exercise. It's not everyone just makes up how to build a church, what a church looks like. No, it's an apostolic church based upon the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Secondly, will you notice that it's a called church? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Paul repeatedly uses this word call. So it comes up a number of times here in chapter 1. So it obviously must be important. And he's telling us something about Christians, and he's telling us something about the church. So notice verse 1, Paul calls himself, called by the will of God. He's not self-appointed, God has called him. He's called by the will of God to be an apostle. Verse 2, he says, says to the Christians in Corinth, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, notice again, called to be saints. 
Notice verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called. Notice verse 22. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Verse 26, for consider your calling. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that the origin of a Christian, your origin, your source, your foundation, wasn't you. It's not that you sought after God. No, God first sought after you. The origin is God. The origin of this church is God. The church is not founded by committees or denominations or bishops. No, it's founded by God and his word. So what did Paul do? Acts chapter 18, he taught the word of God. And the church was founded. Celia, the origin, the source, the foundation, is not us. It's not our idea. Your sort of pop, pop psychology tells you that the power is within you. Well, Paul says the power is not within you. In fact, sin is within you. You need help from the outside. And if you don't get help from the outside, you're lost. The power is not within you. No, the power is in God. God has called you. God has rescued you. God has chosen you. God has saved you. It's God's initiative. Our response, you'll notice, verse 2b, is to call upon the name of the Lord. So that's interesting. God calls, and then we in response, verse 2, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the mark of a Christian is someone who over a couple of days or weeks or months has felt the call of God upon their lives. You felt that. Perhaps you've read a Christian book, you've gone to a church, uh, you've got a Christian friend, friend who talks to you. You've gone to Christianity Explored. And God has, in a strange way, you almost can't explain it. It's inexplicable. You have felt the call upon your life by God. And that's right. God has called you. God has drawn you. God has made you notice your sin. God has made you notice your emptiness. God has made you notice your pointlessness. God has made you notice your brokenness and how you hurt other people and how, how selfish you are. Who does that? You're not doing that. That is God. That's the call of God working in your life. As a consequence, you call upon the name of the Lord. So that's the mark of a Christian. You call upon the name of the Lord. Why do you do that? Because you do it out of weakness. You do that out of, out of, out of spiritual poverty. I can't do this myself. The power is not within me. It's pretty ugly within me, actually. Oh, God, will you have mercy on me? That's a Christian. But who made you aware that it's dirty inside? It was God. Who made you aware that life is pointless? Who made you aware of, of how you hurt other people? Who made you aware of your self-centeredness, your selfishness, your self-righteousness? Where did that come from? Well, it didn't come from within. That's where the problem comes from. No, it was God who was calling you. God who was drawing you. And as a consequence, 
you and I respond and say, oh God, help me. That's the mark of a Christian, someone who's been called and someone who calls. That means that that a Christian, so a real Christian, we can never be arrogant. We can never be self-righteous. You know, religious people can be very painful, can't they? Religious people, because they tell you how good they are, how religious they are. A true Christian can't ever do that. We are not self-righteous. We can't be arrogant. Why? Because it's God who's called us. It's God who's saved us. It's God who's rescued us. It's God who's gathered us into a church. Look at us here. I mean, we're a motley bunch. I mean, most of you are. I won't mention any names. Yet God has called us together. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's inexplicable. He's called us from different backgrounds, different interests, different personalities. He's called us together. That's the work of God. That's the initiative of God. And consequently, we call upon the name of the Lord. So there's no place for arrogance. Any real Christian doesn't pray like this. Any real Christian doesn't pray like this. Lord, thank you that you saved me and you did 80% of the job. And I did the other 20%. No real Christian prays like that. We know that God does 100%. And if God doesn't do 100%, I'm lost. I'm done for. It's not going to work. Notice there he talks, verse 2, of the church of God. It's not your church, it's not my church. So I have a problem when, I mean, you especially, I mean, it's obvious when you see the billboards and it's apostle, this is church, and prophet, this is church, or TV show. And the focus is all on this guru, all on this smart, slick, uh, smooth operator. And he uses religious language. But you do wonder, shouldn't the focus be on Jesus? Did I get it wrong here? It's the church of God. It's not the church of Paul. It's the church of God. So many problems happen in a church when leaders, ministers, pastors, people who lead groups, lead ministries, they think of their ministry as their ministry. This is how we do it, because this is how I've always done it. This is how we do it. So there's a self-possessiveness, and it often ends in tears. My dear friends, this church is not your church. It's not my church. It's God's church. We are here on a temporary basis, being salt and light, sharing the gospel. But actually, it's God's church. He called it. He established it. He gave it life. And he will bring it to completion. So be careful if you're involved in a ministry that you don't think of, think of it as your ministry. It's not your ministry. It's God's ministry. And in his kindness, he is using you and me. He doesn't actually need, need to use us. In his kindness, he uses us. It's the church of God. It's not Paul's, Paul planted this church. Timothy was there. Apollos was there. Priscilla was there. Aquila was there. He doesn't use their names. No, it's the church of God. Be careful of churches where the focus is not God, is not Christ, is not his word, but it's something else. 
All right, third thing. It's a holy church. Time is going. Notice verse verse 2. So the church is apostolic. It's an apostolic church. It's a called church. Thirdly, it's a holy church. Notice verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So you are called for a purpose. You are called to Christ, but you're called for a purpose. The word saint, the word sanctify, the word holy, comes from the same Greek word, which means separate means distinct, which means different. So we are called as Christians and a Christian church to be different from our culture. We are not to be obnoxious or stupid or silly, but our values, our purpose, what drives us, what moves us, what affects our behavior, our lifestyle, our words, is different from the world around us. We should be different. God has called us. He said, you're on a mission. I've called you to be my ambassadors. And you are to be separate. You are to be holy. When I was in uh, Lusaka these last few days, I stayed with Paul and Susan uh, Kayumba in their little house. And um, it was interesting. So so I had a bedroom. I think it was the kids' bedroom. I don't know where the kids slept. And, um, And they used special plates and cups. It was obvious. This was not what they would use every day. (laughs) Now, most of us have got that, haven't we? Somewhere in a cupboard, we have these dusty crockery and cutlery. Most of us, given to us by our granny, and it's supposed to be so precious, and and, uh, when someone special comes, then you bring it out, you dust it off, and you use it for these special gifts. and uh, everyone knows that's not what you normally use. Well, that's what we have here. Paul is saying you are set apart. You're separate. You're distinct. You're not just the ordinary cutlery. You're not just the ordinary mugs. I mean, some of you are mugs, but <laughs> you're not just the ordinary mugs. No, no, no. You're separate. You're separate. You ought to be distinct. So the most, the most damning thing that anyone can say of you and me as a Christian, the most damning thing, the most uh, frightening thing, let's imagine you, you work in an office, people know you're a Christian, and you overhear one of your colleagues saying to a new office worker, you've just employed, they've just employed a new, a new person in the department, and uh, your colleague says, you just overhear them, He says to this new person, he says, you know, Martin's a Christian, but but don't worry, he's just like the rest of us. I mean, that's the most damning thing, isn't it? He's just like the rest of us. No, says Paul, you are to be separate, you are to be distinct, you are to be different by your love, by your behavior, by your lifestyle. Fourthly, will you notice, they are a universal church. They're an apostolic church, they're a called church, they're a holy church, they're a universal church. Verse, verse, uh, verse 2 again. Called to be saints to, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So what is he saying? He's saying the Christian church is much bigger than just Corinth. It's much bigger than just Christ Church Midrand. It's much bigger than just Reach SA. No, the Christian church is anyone 
any body of believers who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are part of the Christian church. So you know at the office or in your classroom, there are other Christians, they belong to other churches, but, but you know you've got this bond, you've got this fellowship, you've got this understanding. You may not agree on everything, but that's fine. They're brothers, they're sisters, because there's a commonality there. He's also saying here that, that the Christian church isn't just for one race or one nation or one culture or one language. No, it's universal. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think one of the greatest tragedies of apartheid was the Group Areas Act. There were many tragedies. We know that. But one of the things the Group Areas Act did was to separate us. So we lived in different places, which meant our churches were separated and Christians were separated. So because of the Group Areas Act, we had white churches, black churches, colored churches, Indian churches, and some churches encouraged it. Can you believe it? Paul is saying there's, there's no such thing like a one-tribe race or church. No, it's made up of anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. It's not just race. You sometimes find it with economic or class distinctions. I heard of a church that uh, someone said is a private school church. So, I mean, what does that mean? Does it mean that I mean, I went to a government school. I went to Mount Pleasant High. You've never heard of Mount Pleasant High. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm not welcome. Perhaps they will welcome me, but I won't ever be given any responsibility. Or I won't get into leadership. I know, I know churches in England that have rectors, and you can't become a rector if you haven't been to Oxford or Cambridge. You see, I think that's the opposite of verse 2. There's no class distinction or race distinction or cultural distinction. No, the church is made up of anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord. And so we need to intentionally stand against any kind of racism or classism or tribalism. Nick in uh, Bukavu in the DRC the different tribes in Bukavu, Nick intentionally sees that leaders of his life groups, his home groups, come from different tribes. Because there are dominant tribes in Bukavu. So he intentionally, and rightly so, sees that the leadership in his church will represent the different groups and tribes in Bukavu. I think that is a, that is a smart move. Because we want to be a church like verse 2. Lastly, will you notice, he thanks God that they are Christians. So just quickly notice, I've got two minutes. Will you notice verse 4 to 9? What is quite striking about this is not what the Corinthians have done, but what God has done for the Corinthians, which is what a Christian is. That's how you start the Christian life. It's what God has done for you. It's not what you have done. So notice verse 4, it's God 
that gave them grace in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, it's God that enriched them with gifts of speech and knowledge. Verse 6, it's God that confirmed the testimony of Christ in them. Verse 7, it's God that gave them every good gift. Verse 7 and 8, they are waiting for the final day of the Lord when Christ returns. Verse 8, it's God who will present them guiltless in Christ. Verse 9, it's God who will remain faithful even to the end. So, I mean, it's obvious if you're a Christian, it's not because of what you've done. I mean, that's quite obvious. No, it's what Christ has done for you. That's why verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Remember that great hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You cannot be a Christian unless you come spiritually naked. You cannot be a Christian unless you become, you come spiritually helpless. You cannot be a Christian unless you recognize the foul sinfulness of your heart. You cannot be a Christian unless the Lord Jesus himself washes you. It's not what we do, it's what God has done for us. Notice the second thing about a Christian, it is someone who was waiting we are waiting for the return of Christ, verse 7. So we know there's a beginning. We know there's an end. That's why we don't become hopeless. We don't become hopeless because this is not my home. I don't belong here. I'm an alien. You've all known I'm an alien. I mean, it's obvious, but we're all aliens. We don't belong here. There's a beginning. There's an end. Christ is returning or he'll take us home. So we don't have to live hopeless lives. We can live joyful lives, thankful lives, because we know God's in control. He will return. And lastly, will you notice, it's almost unbelievable, verse 8, that on the day of judgment, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've called on the name of Jesus, you will be guiltless. Can you imagine that? Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, is that possible? I mean, think of the things you've done, some of the things we've done, some of the things we've said. Even worse, the things we've thought, not just of people, but of God. And Paul says, you will stand guiltless. The word there, the Greek word is unimpeachable. Now, if you watch the news, Donald Trump is impeachable. Paul says you will be unimpeachable. No one will be able to accuse you of a single sin. Why? Because Christ carried that sin for you. Christ died for your sins. So that one day you will be guiltless. There's a tombstone in a New York graveyard. No name, no date of birth, no date of death, no little poem or rhyme. No rest in peace. Just one word. Just one word. Forgiven. I want that on my tombstone. Forgiven. Where do you stand?
Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You tell God where you are. Father, there's not a single person in this room who is guiltless or unimpeachable. Father, we all have history. And yet we thank you that Christ came to cleanse us and wash us so that we can stand guiltless before God. Oh, Lord, what an extraordinary, what an extraordinary gift. And, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who has never called upon your name, perhaps they've used your name as a swear word or a curse, but they've never called upon your name to rescue them, will you help them today, today, to call on your name? And to know that because of what you have done, we can be forgiven and we can be guiltless. So, Father, give us that great assurance and that great joy that we have in Christ. And go with us into this week and help us to serve him in all that we do for Christ's sake. Amen.